Good evening. My name is Mark Costello. I'm a 1984 graduate of Amherst College, uh, where I had the often strange pleasure of being a roommate and a dear friend of uh, David Foster Wallace. And I'd like to just briefly welcome all of you to tonight's uh, celebration of the life and writing of Dave Wallace. Um, after some of the reflections that we'll hear tonight, there'll be a reception for, for everyone just across the hall uh, right here on this floor. So without further ado, um, I'd like to uh, introduce Alex Chi. Hello. Thanks for coming. Uh, I wore this shirt uh, to make a point, but it's not the point that you might think. Um, I did it partly because I had been thinking for a while about uh, I had been thinking for a while about David Foster Wallace and what I would say here tonight. Um, and one of the things that I really admired about him uh, was his commitment to the political life of the country, whatever that was, uh, and his, his belief that it mattered uh, to be both uh, an artist and political. Um, and this may seem a bit odd, but when I was when I was taking my my MFA degree, uh, there was a real chill towards work that had any kind of political content. Uh, it was considered uh, sort of beneath you to write about politics in the United States if you wanted to be a serious literary writer, and uh, and David never feared that. As I was thinking about what I would say tonight, I had to go to Paris uh, for research for a book that I'm writing. And so last weekend, I found myself in a palace outside of Paris in a town called Melun, in front of a statue of the writer La Fontaine. The palace's owner was a literary man, and he had kept this statue of his favorite writer, a bust of his head that changed its expression when you lit it differently both expressions were serious, one was very sad. And it seemed to me that this was too often the mode in which serious literary writers were thought of by their fans, that we were always serious and sad when we were not grave. I paused briefly to imagine my own bust there under the changing light, and then I imagined David Foster Wallace's. I know David in some ways, primarily through my students of the last 10 years. I remember in 2002 having to scrub unnecessary footnotes from stories because of him. In David's work when he used them, these had functioned as a series of spillways for the story and for his mind, and in the work of my students then, emulating him, they were trying to be as full of ideas that they'd need these as well. 
But they were not, and they were not, as you could say. And so these footnotes had to go. Here at Amherst, my students wrote to me about him using just his initials, DFW, as if, of course, I would know who it was they meant and not sit there trying to parse the initials out into the man they were referring to, which is what I did and which is what this feels like now. David Foster Wallace has been part of my thinking about American writing since I was in graduate school in 1992 when he was one of the hot new young writers who were transforming literary culture in the U.S. In 1995, I remember being in New York and meeting with a literary agent who wanted to take me on. I had had some success with getting part of my Iowa thesis read by editors at magazines and publishers, and I believed my thesis would eventually become a novel that would weigh in at about 600 or so pages. The agent assured me with all the energy she could muster that no one was publishing books of that size anymore. <clears throat> I eventually began work on what I thought was a more conventional novel, and it would become my first book, but I nursed a hurt from that in the sense that I felt strongly, somehow, that I'd let myself down. In less than a year, David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest appeared, and I remember greeting that novel with a smile in the bookstore. More of these juggernauts appeared, but his was the first, I recall, and it made him a hero to me. I've since learned to take what publishers say with something like a grain of salt, and as I thought about those, thought about what I would say to you tonight, I thought I would use this address to think of those of you who might want to imitate his footnotes and his pell-mell style, because there's already one David Foster Wallace, and there won't ever be another. If you really want to be like him, consider this instead. Reject conventional wisdom as regards your career as a writer and trust the ideas you have for your own work like you would trust a friend and treat the idea of betraying those ideas the way you would treat the idea of betraying a friend. Believe in the importance of your participation in the political life of the country as a citizen, as a writer. Don't let yourself be cowed by those who sniff at the idea of mixing art and politics. Write with all the courage you can muster and believe in the importance of writing, of essays, novels, short stories, poems. A writer's relationship to his audience is something sacred and secular both. It is not a religion, even if it ends up like it does all over Paris, where in museum after museum, I saw the bedrooms and desks of writers and streets named after writers and statues of them. A fiction writer's job is to make something for the reader that is like their memories, and that will, if it is successful, become something that they live with all their lives. The immediacy of this transformation in the reader becomes the immediacy in their relationship to the writer. This is why we are here, to honor one of our midnight friends. This is a book that I had made for this occasion. It's a condolence book. It's going to be on a stand in the back of the room there, and I would like you to add your name to it before you leave. Thank you for coming.
Thank you, Alex. We'll now hear from Sue Dickman. Pardon me? Oh. Wow. <laughs> uh, I had emails with Andy Parker in which I said, well, Andy, if I'm going to be the convener, that means I don't have to say anything, right? <laughs> I'll say this. Um, thinking about what Dave Wallace might mean to the students who are here tonight, I wanted to just put one corrective into the record, and that is that we have this almost religious need to believe in genius. And we want to believe that there's a continuum of, continuum of talent, and then beyond that continuum lies a bunch of empty space, beyond which lies more empty space, beyond which lies genius. And that we want to believe the genius is something that is like some buoyant object that you could release it at the bottom of any tub and it'll always come up, right? You take a boy and put him with repressive Jesuits and put him with... Uh, you know, a bunch of drunks, and he's still going to come up James Joyce. Uh, maybe that's true. I don't know. The word genius has a very funny history. The one thing I do know by way of a corrective is that Dave, the one genius I think I knew, Dave Wallace, did not believe in that. Uh, he believed that everything was deeply contingent um, and that everything could have not happened. I remember once he was talking about a writer who uh, had met some uh, discouragement, and he said, uh, he said, you know, it was lucky for me that I got published in grad school and to immediate raves when I was 25 years old because I've never been one to really stick th with things through a lot of negativity. So if he had met with, he hadn't met with success, if he hadn't been recognized, this was his own theory of himself. Perhaps he might have been a philosophy teacher and a good one, a high school teacher and a good one, uh, a literature professor and a very good one. And perhaps he wouldn't have been a genius. Um, I remember once, some years later, he was talking about how he was in trouble with his editor in New York. And he said, you know, oh, this, I'm late, and this person's going to cancel my piece, and I've already put three months of work into it. I think it was a 20-word piece or something incredible. And I'm like, Dave, relax, because you're Dave Wallace the genius. This editor's not going to, you know. And he said, um, that just makes me feel like I'm a fraud in front of you, too. The fraud was one of the worst words in his personal vocabulary. It... Um, he told me once that when he was very depressed, he would have these voices in his head, this chatter that he called it, and they would accuse him of things uh, at the Dave speed, right? You're a fraud, you're a liar, you're a fraud, you're selfish, 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 selfish. And he would write because it would tune out the voices. He could get his whole mind focused on this voice in front of him, like an object of contemplation, and that voice would get him out of the voices in his head. You know, the beautiful voice that we all know. Most really pretty girls have pretty ugly feet, and Mindy Sue Metalman was no exception. That's what he gets instead of fraud, 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 fraud. So fraud was a terrible word for him, and he thought genius was a fraud. That's what he said to me. So 
to me, this is a very strange thing to contemplate, particularly for students who are here, because he was once you. And he believed that, but for contingencies, but for a college that didn't put intellectual limits on people, but for professors who took him seriously from day one, but for friends, roommates, but for parents, but for everything else, his genius might not have happened. And it's a strange and, I think, for me, scary thing to contemplate because it means that if it's true that that genius that we consider 100 years from now, they'll read these books, but if that genius might not have happened, it means that there is, and it only happened because of support he received at Amherst from friends and from some teachers you'll be hearing now. That was at least what he believed. If that's true, then it means that there's an obligation on the part of us tonight to take care of the genius sitting next to you. Now it's time for Sue Dickman. I'm Sue Dickman, and I graduated from Amherst in 1989. In the fall of 1987, I was a student in the one and only class that Dave Wallace taught here at Amherst. When I heard that he had died, um, I was quite stricken, and I sat down and I, within about an hour, and I wrote about him in my blog, um, and that's what I'm going to read tonight. It's an in-memoriam piece for him. I just saw the news that David Foster Wallace killed himself. I'm stunned and shaken and sad, but I can't say that I'm entirely surprised. I knew him a long time ago. He was my teacher at Amherst in the fall of 1987. I was back at school after a year off, a year in which I'd contemplated leaving and transferring to Oberlin. But that spring, when I was trying to figure out what to do, my dad sent me a clip from the Wall Street Journal called something like Whiz Kid Writes Wacky First Novel about Dave's first book, The Broom of the System, which he'd originally written as his senior thesis at Amherst. One of two theses I later learned. He double majored in English and philosophy and written honors theses in both departments, basically unheard of, graduating with a double summa cum laude, even more unheard of. I didn't decide to go back to Amherst because of him, but when I got back and found out that he was teaching that semester, a single creative writing class, I immediately applied to get in. It's been 21 years, and I still remember his class vividly. Dave was about 25. He had long hair and always came to class with a tennis racket and sometimes cookies. He had us take breaks so he could smoke. We loved him. I can pretty safely say that all of the women in the class and possibly some of the men had crushes on him. I bonded with someone who later became a good friend because she was the only person in the class with a bigger crush on him than me. He was goofy and charming and cute and unlike any other teacher I'd ever had. But that's not why I remember the class so clearly. He was a wonderful teacher, even at 25, even just out of grad school. He was tough in workshop, but not mean. He made me look at writers I'd already discovered on my own, like Laurie Moore, in a new way, 
and he introduced me to writers I probably never would have discovered on my own, like Lee K. Abbott, whose story, Living Alone in Iota, remains a life favorite. He had us read The Mangler, a Stephen King story about a possessed laundry machine, in conjunction with a prize-winning short story told from the point of view of a dead body called Poor Boy to illustrate the differences between literary and genre fiction. There were other tangible things. I used to confuse further and farther, and apparently I did it quite often. In one of my stories, I'd confused them yet again, and in the margins, he'd written simply, I hate you. <laughs> I've never confused them since. <laughs> he once left me a note postponing a meeting, excusing himself by saying, I'm so hungry I'm going to fall over. While I was irritated that he wasn't there, I immediately adopted that sentence and have been saying it ever since. Mostly, he was the first person who really made me think I could be a writer. I'd applied to the class with a clearly autobiographical short story I'd written the semester before I left for my year off, a story called At Charlie's House. On the basis of that story, he let me into the class. But when I wanted to talk to him more about the story, he told me that, in truth, it wasn't actually a very good story. But that I could write that story told him that I could write better stories. I don't know what's going on with you and that Charlie guy, I remember him saying. He advised me to move on. I can't say I did that entirely where Charlie was concerned, but I put the story away and I tried to write better ones. It didn't happen all at once, but at some point during the semester, it just clicked. I worked harder for him than I had for any other professor in any other college class. Writing fiction was the only thing I'd ever done that frustrated me that much, but that I still wanted to do. It was a revelation. The second story I handed in, about a mother and daughter on a ferry to Alaska, was 20 pages, the longest story anyone had handed in at that point. I was very apologetic about making everyone read 20 pages, but Dave told me it wasn't long enough. If I really wanted everyone to be on that ferry with me, I needed more detail. I gave him detail. I took the whole thing apart and put it back together again. My revision was 40 pages long, and he kindly agreed to read another draft even after the semester was over. The final version was closer to 60 pages, no longer really a story at all. That story won me a prize at Amherst, which astonished me, and it got my senior creative writing thesis proposal accepted. I can't say that he made me a writer, because I probably would have figured it out some other way further on in time. But I definitely know it wouldn't have happened the way it happened if it hadn't been for him if he hadn't been so smart and so tough, if he hadn't challenged me the way he did, if he hadn't pushed me to challenge myself. We stayed in touch for a few years after that. Somewhere in a box in my basement are the few postcards and letters I got in those pre-email days. One letter arrived when I was in India for the first time, a letter he wrote mostly to tell me that he'd sent in my letters of recommendation for grad school. He told me other things, though, like he, that he was in a halfway house for drug rehabilitation. It was a strangely intimate letter from a former teacher to a former student, especially since I hadn't known he had any issues with drugs. He told me that he wasn't much of a traveler, so he was impressed with my bravery about going to India. He signed it Love, but with his full name. Love, David Foster Wallace. I haven't seen him or talked to him in more than 20 years. I always thought that if he ever came to read at Amherst, I'd go see him, but that never happened. But when I wrote above that I wasn't entirely surprised to hear that he'd killed himself, it goes back that far. 
I often said at the time and since that he was the smartest person I'd ever met. I think that's probably still true, and it's probably true for a lot of other people, that he was the smartest person they'd ever met. Even at 21, I could tell that it was the kind of smart that made you strange, that it was too much. Even then, we got glimpses of another side of him. At some point, I stopped reading his fiction. One of his gifts as a teacher was that he kept his own writing separate from our writing, not that realistically any of us could have written like him anyway. I read The Broom of the System. I read Girl with Curious Hair. I read his later essays with great delight. I still have fond memories of reading his essay about going to the Illinois State Fair while I was living in Delhi in 1994 and 95. And along with everyone else, I adored his cruise ship piece. But Infinite Jest was too much for me, though my brother loved it and gave me a copy, hoping we could talk about it. Still, even as I strayed from him as a reader, I followed his career from afar. A few years ago, I met his parents at an Amherst reunion, and I told them he'd been my teacher all those years ago. I told them how important he'd been to me. I don't know anything about the present tense of his life or what drove him to kill himself. I'm sad for his parents and his wife and his sister, for his friends and all of his other students, for everyone else he encouraged with his intensity and with his smartness and his humor. And selfishly, I'm sad for myself. For the past 21 years, since the fall of 1987, I've thought that when the time came that I published my own book, that I'd send him a copy with thanks, that I'd tell him all of these years later how much he'd influenced me. He was there at the beginning for me, and in addition to all the zillion other reasons, I'm sad he's gone. I'm sad he won't, that he won't be there anymore along the way. Thanks. I'm not very experienced at this, and I hope you'll bear with me. Um, there were a lot of stories that I could have told, and there are some that I'm remembering now that I wish I could tell. Um, but instead, I'll read what I wrote. I met Dave by way of Mark Costello. Mark and I met while we worked in the dining hall dish rooms my freshman year, where we would talk a little bit about ourselves and fiction and school and whatnot. At some point, Mark told me he had a friend he thought I'd really like, Dave Wallace, who was taking the semester off and would return next year. Mark and I stayed on campus that summer and worked in the dining hall. And Mark told me stories about Dave, about his wit, his intellect, his verbal playfulness, stories that revealed Mark's great fondness for Dave. When my sophomore year began and I finally met Dave, I did like him and we became friends. I joined their small group. Mark, 
Dave, Corey, a couple others. We had our particular time and place in Valentine for dinner, a table centered on a window where we would watch the sky change as the sun set. And over the course of my sophomore year, I got to know Dave pretty well. It was a good thing I didn't care if I was smart enough, because if I did, I would have been terrified of Dave's intellect. I know this can't be true, but in my memory, Dave shows up at every dinner wearing a gray hoodie that says Park City Cobras, with a fierce-looking cobra stitched on the front of it. I asked him once what he so liked about that hooded sweatshirt, and he just said, more or less, he thought it was cool that he liked the cobra. I couldn't help but think that he imagined himself as a cobra, tightly coiled, but also fierce and dangerous. I do know, without any doubt, that that hoodie gave him comfort. I lived in Tyler House, where I was lucky enough to have won first spot in the lottery and obtained, to my knowledge, the only two-room single with its own bathroom on campus. It was a special room. And Dave and Mark were among the few people living in the center of campus who were willing to make the trek all the way up and up the hill to Tyler House. Others would say, you live where? Oh, that's too far. But Dave and Mark would even make the trek in dead winter with slush and snow everywhere, bitter cold out. And that said a lot and meant a lot to me. Unlike Dave, I spent much more time working on my room than I did on classwork. And that's serious understatement. The room's harsh white walls were covered with darkish madras prints, and it was furnished with old lamps, including one that had been on my nightstand since early childhood. There was used furniture with scratches and imperfections, and flotsam and doodads picked up at yard sales or consignment stores. I built a wall-to-wall loft too low to stand up under, which established a ceiling that pressed down on the sitting space created below, and the ceiling that loft created was draped with another Madras print, behind which were hidden low-watt light bulbs to create an effect. (laughs) Dave once asked me why I put so much effort into the room, and I explained, because my room is a bigger version of my head. When Dave and Mark would come to visit, we'd sit under that low ceiling with soft light and sometimes eat Nutter Butter cookies and wash them down with gin and tonics. We'd talk about ourselves and school and fiction and whatnot, and I would say cruel adolescent things about classmates and Amherst and famous authors. And Dave and Mark, more mature than I, or at least more restrained, would try to understand my anger and try to temper it with reasonableness and second thoughts. But I think more important than all that, we'd listen to music. And this was especially true when Dave would come up to visit alone. Our tastes in music converged. We could sit for hours listening closely to songs, sometimes one song over and over again, and then talk about it while I fingered through my shelf of LPs or stack of cassettes to find exactly which song we should explore next. 
Dave heard something in the music I chose, something he called spinal. By this, he meant music that had a quality that cut straight to our spines, which activated our nervous systems, raised goosebumps each time we listened. Listening to certain music, the volume turned up high to block out other sound. The light and the setting, just so, changed us if only for a few minutes at a time. Dave especially liked songs like Brian Eno's The Big Ship and Section 25's Desert, songs that seemed to inflate three-dimensional spaces inside us, absolutely real-seeming, tangible, meaning-filled spaces in our minds and bodies. And I don't think this was strictly the gin at work. When the music ended and those spaces closed up, leaving only a flattish afterimage, Dave and I would talk about them or try to talk about them or perhaps mostly just stare off into the corners and think about them in silence, but with the comfort of the other's presence and companionship. In preparing to stand here with you now, I spent uncounted pre-dawn hours listening to some of that music again, and it still cuts straight to my spine. There was something about it, for Dave as there is for me, that invoked other worlds inside us. I know that Dave knew all too well there is a world outside of us, the world of facts and things and other people, and a world inside of us, the world of our thoughts and emotions, and that because of this, there are in fact many worlds. We carry within each one of us our own separate, private world. And these private, psychic worlds are built of and upon our history, our memory, our imagination, all of our deep mental constructs. No two are alike. Our streams of consciousness and unconsciousness run too fast or too deep or too complexly to be fully self-comprehended never mind to be fully, effectively shared with others. Perhaps no one can ever completely know what goes on inside us, and perhaps we can never really know all there is of ourselves. I'm not sure what drew Dave to me. I do know what drew me to him, his acute mind, his vocabulary, his ability and willingness to forge a common parlance about alienation and loneliness and striving for more and better. There were times I offered Dave what comfort I could, bossed him around when I thought he needed it, poured gin and played music when there was nothing else to say. I wish I could have done more and better to ease his pain. Dave worked on the bigger version of his head by writing, by reading, by thinking, by paying attention. I'm sure he fought hard not to inure himself to the world outside his own skull. But he was also the first person to quote to me Sartre's line, hell is other people. I paraphrase back to him another one, the attribution lost to me. We are all just impersonating identities. They are hard lines to get away from, and hard rows to hoe.
I suspect some of you in this room know exactly what I'm talking about here. Some of you know because you remember your own times, places, and feeling states. And my words ring true to you. They cleave to some experience of your own, to something important and meaningful in you, to what once was and always will be inside you. Like Dave, I suffer from bipolar disorder. Like Dave, I walked up to the very edge of suicide. So I feel like I should have some answers about what tortured him, about why he took his life. I may even feel obligated to have answers. And sometimes I even think I do. But eventually a rational thought overrides. I cannot know the answers for sure. There are too many possibilities and too many unknowns. I never knew David Foster Wallace. I knew Dave Wallace, an Amherst student who walked across campus on cold October days, wanting to read and know everything, wanting to create something great of his own someday. And there were moments in that special room up at Tyler House when I felt I knew him, truly connected with him, better than I ever had with another person. And I think there were moments in that room when he truly connected with me. I miss you, Dave. I miss the part of you that still lives in me. For those who don't know me, I'm Andrew Parker. I teach in the English department here. Um, what I'm going to read is, is pretty short. Um, I actually wanted to read some of David here. Um, the, the, the cadences are unmistakable, um, even though this is one of the, the last things that he wrote. Um, whenever I would run into David over the past 20 years, which tended to happen with some surprising regularity at airports and bookstores. Different flights, lines loop around, and we, we would continue our conversation as we were going on opposite directions on those lines. Um, whenever I would run into David, I'd tell him that I still get students in my classes whose first and sometimes only question to me is, what was it like teaching David Foster Wallace? And each time I would mention this to him, he would give me that look, which was equal parts, you must be shitting me, and what, you can't get dates on your own? <laughs> Characteristically, he never asked me about what I told them. For the record, I didn't exactly teach David. I was in my first years at Amherst and not much older than David, when he appeared in the back row in my section of English 20, then a required course for the English major, in which we read that year Plato's Phaedrus, 
along with Derrida's dissemination. We had standards then. We talked often outside of class about things like grad school and whether he should go on in literature or philosophy. I suggested that he might like reading more Thomas Pynchon and also Mario Puig, whose idiosyncratic representation of dialogue appealed immensely to David. Above all, we talked about fiction as a mode of thinking, about the differences, if such there are, between fiction and nonfiction. So it was with mingled pang and pleasure that I rediscovered these following paragraphs this past weekend in David's bravura introduction to the best American essays of 2007. It's the green one. Quote, most literary readers take a position on the meaning of essay rather like the famous one that Justice Potter Stewart took on obscene. We feel that we pretty much know an essay when we see one, and that's enough, regardless of all the noodling and complication involved in actually trying to define the term essay. I don't know whether gut certainty is really enough here or not, though. I think I personally prefer the term literary nonfiction, Pieces like, and these are pieces from the volume, uh, Joanne Baird's Werner and Daniel Orozco's Shakers seem so remote from the sort of thing that Montaigne and Chesterton were doing when the essay was being codified that to call these pieces essays seems to make the term too broad to really signify. And yet, Beard's and Orozco's pieces are so arresting and alive and good, that they end up being salient even if one is working as a guest essay editor and sitting there reading a dozen Xerox pieces in a row before them and then another dozen in a row after them. Essays on everything from memory and surfing and Esperanto to childhood and mortality and Wikipedia, on depression and translation and emptiness, and James Brown, Mozart, prison, poker, trees, and orgasmia, which I have no idea what it means, color, homelessness, stalking, fellatio, ferns, fathers, grandmothers, falconry, grief, film comedy. A rate of consumption which tends to level everything out into an undifferentiated mass of high-quality description and trenchant reflection that becomes both numbing and euphoric, a kind of total noise, capital T, capital N, that's also the sound of our US culture right now, a culture of volume and info and spin and rhetoric and context that I know I'm not alone in finding too much to even absorb, much less to try to make sense of or organize into any kind of triage of saliency or value. Such basic absorption, organization, and triage used to be what was required of an educated adult, also known as an informed citizen. At least, that's what I got taught. Suffice it here to say that the requirements now seem different. 
continue with David. A corollary to the above bad news is that I'm not really even all that confident or concerned about the differences between nonfiction and fiction, with differences here meaning formal and definitive, and I referring to me as a reader. There are, as it happens, intergenre differences that I know and care about as a writer, though these differences are hard to talk about in a way that someone who doesn't try to write both fiction and nonfiction will understand. I'm worried that they'll sound cheesy and melodramatic, although maybe they won't. Maybe, given the ambient volume of your own life's noise, the main difference will make sense to you. Writing-wise, fiction is scarier, but nonfiction is harder, because nonfiction's based in reality, and today's felt reality is overwhelmingly, circuit-blowingly huge and complex, whereas fiction comes out of nothing. Actually, so wait. The truth is that both genres are scary, both feel like they're executed on tight ropes, over abysses. It's the abysses that are different. Fiction's abyss is silence, not a. Whereas nonfiction's abyss is total noise, the seething static of every particular thing and experience, and one's total freedom of infinite choice about what to choose to attend to and represent and connect and how and why." Unquote. It seemed to me somehow appropriate to read these sentences into the record today, and not only because those cadences sound so much like David, and not only because they remind me so much of what we were trying to wrap our heads around in the floor below this one 20-something years ago. The irony, one that David would appreciate better than anyone, is, is that his death now forms part of that total noise. Witness, for example, the current issue of Rolling Stone, in which a moving story about David's last year sits cheek by jowl with stories on Nick Jonas, Elvis Costello, the resurgence of the Taliban, and Barack Obama. You'll hear in this juxtaposition, I imagine, an echo of the undifferentiated mass of high-quality description and trenchant reflection that can become both numbing and euphoric, a kind of total noise that's also the sound of our U.S. culture right now. But David also taught me through the years that the sound this culture emits can be arresting and alive and good. One final anecdote. I attended last summer my partner's 25th reunion dinner from college, where I found myself seated next to an old friend and classmate of hers who, after graduating, went on to become a famous urologist. He referred to himself as the urologist of the stars. He told me with some excitement all about the urology business. I began to think I was in a David story at this point. He told me about, with excitement about the urology business, the new building he moved into 
which contains in-house lab and radiation facilities, one-stop shopping, as it were. This went on for maybe 20 minutes. I began to wonder whether we'd ever get on to another topic. I then began to wonder whether I should ask him if getting up twice in the middle of the night is normal for someone my age. (laughs) When I finally asked him, well, that's all your work life, what did you do for fun? He said, without a moment's hesitation or any prompting on my part, that he read David Foster Wallace. Everything, repeatedly. I'd been saving the story in anticipation of the next time I'd see David. I hoped it would provoke that look once again. I'm Dale Peterson, and like Sue Dickman, within 48 hours of learning of Dave's death, I was at my computer struggling to bring him back, using what we use to attempt the impossible, using words. In the spring of his junior year, David was reading through my syllabus of long American novels, when he suddenly took strong exception to some less-than-complimentary remarks I had made about Frank Norris's grotesque, precociously absurd novel, McTeague. In response, David wrote a brilliant, spirited, literary defense of that novel's coupling of bizarre incident and semi-serious philosophizing. That was, as I remember it, the start of everything that followed. Of course, I had no idea that David was thinking about writing his own long American novel. The next year, it was my good fortune to be appointed David's senior honors advisor in English, probably on the basis of the relationship that we had stuck up, struck up, but also, I imagine, because many colleagues were reluctant to take on a creative writing proposal that promised to be, and in the end was, of massive girth. The completed manuscript came in two volumes. I counted the pages today, totaling 560 double-spaced pages. The standard expectation then for an honors essay in English was, and still is, 50 pages of well-polished prose, and at the time, undergraduate novels were decidedly frowned upon. But David's stellar academic reputation preceded him, and his ambition could not reasonably be thwarted. Soon I was on the receiving end of a prodigious outpouring of imaginative fiction, struggling to keep up with the weekly stream of inventive language and ingenious plotting that flowed from David's positively Dickensian energy for spawning new characters and new connections among them. I can tell you it was a thrilling, dizzying experience to watch David wrestle wild tangents into coherent shape. The end result, the broom of the system, was accepted by Viking Press in its first Penguin paperback edition of contemporary American fiction. It was absolutely characteristic of David's work, a large, rambunctious, sinisterly comic narrative about the proliferation of systems and information circuits that enmesh the characters 
and our lives too. David was encouraged, as has been mentioned, by both his philosophy and his English professors to go straight on to graduate study in their fields. But fortunately, he was more encouraged by his own prolific talent for creative writing. After graduation from Arizona, he shared that talent generously with later generations of Amherst students, and Sue Dickman has spoken to that. As a visiting instructor in 1987, he was already his mature self, as I remember him, a soft-spoken, sweet-natured man who wrapped his head in a signature bandana and carried a sharp pencil to ward off grammatical and stylistic offenses. His readings on campus, like so much else about David, were legendary. His talk on the occasion of his honorary degree, his hilariously serious talk in 1999 on the occasion of his honorary degree, was devoted to a rather arcane subject dear to his heart, the pitched battle between prescriptive and descriptive grammarians. I have chosen to quote from that article, Authority and American Usage, because it testifies with warm humor and obvious affection. It testifies to the, with warm humor and obvious affection to the language arts that were practiced daily at home with his own family. From one perspective, David writes, a certain irony attends the publication of any good new book on American usage. It is that the people who are going to be interested in such a book are also the people who are least going to need it. The choir here comprises that small percentage of American citizens who actually care about the current status of double modals and ergative verbs. The same sorts of people who watched the story of English on PBS twice and read, and read William Sapphire's column with their latte every Sunday. The sorts of people who feel that special blend of wincing despair and sneering superiority when they see express lane, 10 items or less, instead of fewer, or hear dialogue used as a verb, or realize that the founders of the Super 8 motel chain must surely have been ignorant of the meaning of suppurate, There are, there are lots of epithets for people like these. Grammar Nazis, usage nerds, syntax snobs, the grammar battalion, the language police. The term I was raised with is snoot. Snoot, noun, highly colloquial, is this reviewer's nuclear family's nickname for a really extreme usage fanatic, the sort of person whose idea of Sunday fun is to hunt for mistakes in the very prose of William Sapphire's column. <laughs> this reviewer's family is roughly 70% snoot, which term itself derives from an acronym, syntax nudniks of our time. Snootitude runs in families. Here's an example. Family suppers often involved a game. If one of us children made a usage error, Mum would pretend to have a coughing fit that would go on and on and on until the relevant child had identified the relevant error and corrected it. It was all very self-ironic and lighthearted. But still, looking back, it seems a bit excessive to pretend, <laughs> to pretend that your small child is actually denying you oxygen by speaking incorrectly. The really chilling thing, though, is that I now sometimes find myself 
playing the same game with my own students, complete with the pretend percussion. It is, of course, the person himself that those of us who were fortunate enough to know him most miss. And so I want to close my remembrance with a household anecdote from my own family. With great trepidation, David agreed to house-sit with our pets, an aging rotund cat and a feisty cockatiel. Always conscientious, he warned us that he was wary of cats, but he would do his best to be companionable. When we returned to the house, David was quite enamored of the cat and hardly despised the bird. It seems the bird, Lolita, was a spitfire, hissing at him whenever he approached to feed her. Years later, when I received my paperback copy, yes, of The Broom of the System, the cover featured a garish caricature of our pet bird, now renamed Vlad the Impaler. <laughs> David had had his sweet revenge in a typically witty manner, though I knew, my family knew, that at heart David himself was a pussycat. It is terribly sad that he was too gentle, too vulnerable, to go gently toward that ultimate good night that awaits us all. My name is Dara Reguignon, and I was a colleague of Dave's at Pomona. And I also graduated from Amherst 15 years ago, so I think I get to be the person who overlapped with him at both, in well, didn't overlap, but shared with him at both institutions. Uh, I first met Dave in 2005, uh, and so I start there. When I first met Dave Wallace at 7.30 a.m. on the first day of my job interview for the position of director of college writing at Pomona, he introduced himself quickly and abruptly. Walking in and toward his seat, he paused to shake my hand. Hi, Dave Wallace, he said. And then, go Lord Jeffs. <laughs> I knew at that point, I think, that Dave Wallace was also David Foster Wallace, but that greeting wasn't the best DFW story that I took home from the interview. It was lost, perhaps, in that introductory moment's mental panic, as I tried to meld names and faces and positions together for all the members of the search committee without coffee and after a late-night arrival from the East Coast. The story that I went home with was just as startling at the time, but perhaps less surprising overall. In the midst of a complaint about the number of badly written letters of application they'd received, Dave informed me with great seriousness that my letter had been practically error-free. <laughs> what do you say to that? Um, I still don't know what a good answer would have been. Um, I think I went with, um, thanks. Uh, Amherst recurred a number of times over the course of the two days of my interview and did so again over the three years that Dave and I were colleagues at an institution geographically distant from but modeled on small liberal arts colleges of the New England type. That language really is in Pomona's charter. During that initial visit, we compared notes on the few professors we'd had in common, and when I asked about Pomona students, he answered through a comparison to those he and I had known here. 
I'd imagine that Dave invoked the Lord Jeffs when we first met to put me at my ease. It failed utterly in that. I can't tell you how jarring it is to hear the name of your undergraduate institution's mascot at the beginning of an academic job interview. But it did give me an obscure sense that he was rooting for me, a sense I never really lost. We were colleagues for only three years. We sat around the same enormous round table for department meetings. We argued over things I can no longer remember. We lobbied together on behalf of a colleague. We traded emails and marginal comments when we read sets of essays and stories submitted for departmental prizes. As a senior colleague, Dave was an unusual one. He was removed by choice and temperament from institutional politics. He was deliberately naive in certain ways and an incredibly savvy advocate in others. But go Lord Jeffs hasn't been echoing in my head since mid-September because it helps me think of him dashing into the English department at Pomona and up the stairs to a meeting. Instead, I think it's because I actually knew Dave best through the students we shared. I knew him as a teacher, and it so happens I know something of the place that shaped his sense of what being a teacher means. In interview after interview, Dave talks about the importance for him of having gone to a really good school, and as a result of having had really good teachers and being surrounded by smart people while in college. Every year that Dave was at, at Pomona, <laughs> there was a cluster of students who graduated having taken multiple classes together and with him, groups that are still close-knit, writerly, and talented. As I walked around in the 95-degree heat of mid-September in Southern California, hearing a cheer for my New England alma mater in my head, I also kept thinking of the seven members of the class of 2008, whom Dave and I had both known well, he through creative writing workshops and I through the Writing Center. Now scattered to Santa Monica and Portland and Seattle and Chicago and New York, those students are too recently graduated to have built up the kinds of local support structures you want them to have on hearing of the death of a beloved teacher. As I dug up cell phone numbers, tracked down email addresses, and found them on Facebook, I kept thinking about their loss, as though their loss could help me understand or perhaps simply deflect my own. I want to offer you some of their writings for and about Dave, and I want to add these writings to the layered portrait we've been making of who he was so that we can notice some of the traces he's left behind, and I think some of the traces this college left on him. In a Lapham's quarterly piece juxtaposing Verlin Klinkenborg's New York Times tribute with an elegiac poem by Catullus, Andrew Carlson wrote that, quote, while Wallace understood well the solipsism of depression, he himself evinced none of it in spite of his affliction. He was, in every opportunity, utterly generous and caring, as an artist, as a thinker, as a teacher, as a friend. Meditating on Verlin's discovery that the image was even more different from the man than he'd imagined, Andrew writes gently, there was David Foster Wallace, and there was Dave. Another student, Julia Kramer, gets at that particular split as well. Of having David Foster Wallace as a teacher, she writes, he insisted we call him Dave because he, said, he said he felt like a fraud going by professor. When my boyfriend asked him for help getting an internship, Dave gave him some contacts to write to. By the way, Dave told my boyfriend, as if explaining himself, my writer name is David Foster Wallace. Was he kidding? Did he really think we didn't know who he was? As his students, we were obsessed with him. He taught only 12 of us each semester, and half that many would line up each week for his office hours. We wanted to talk to him about what we were planning on writing. 
what we'd already written, whether it was okay that we weren't going to be eye bankers or consultants or law students. You're really in a pickle, he'd say to me, always sincere and compassionate. Dave's value as a teacher wasn't entirely separable from his status as an iconic author. His students all knew that Dave was always also David Foster Wallace. And as a result, they had the extraordinary gift and surprise of signing up to take a class with the famous guy, only to find the most dedicated, prepared, and caring teacher of their college careers. Stories of Dave's written commentaries abound at Pomona. Five or six-page comments on six-page stories, four or more different colors of marginalia, one for each time he'd read the piece. The hand-drawn emoticons responding to crazy syntax or redundant phrasings. The characteristic sign-off, avuncularly, Dave. (laughs) Such details and anecdotes quickly become the stuff of legend, the external contours of an icon that now stands alongside that of DFW, writer. But of course, his skill as a teacher wasn't about anything reducible to the length of his comments or the evident humor of their style. It was about his intense focus on helping each of those students become the best writer he or she could be, a focus that perhaps necessarily included a brutal honesty about moments of mediocrity or failure. On campus during his life, Dave was known as much as a really tough teacher as a generous one. One recent graduate, now in an MFA program, has found herself repeatedly surprised by how much less rigorous the workshops are, how much less useful feedback she gets from the, both the professors and her peers than she did in her three undergraduate workshops with Dave. That same, that same student, Amanda Shapiro, warned in mid-September of the dangers of trying to describe Dave now. She writes, I'm scanning headlines about Dave's death, and I'm frustrated because everything I'm finding isn't about Dave, not really. The media is talking about his books and his essays and sometimes his teaching career, and honestly, none of it is making much sense to me. They're talking about someone, but it's not Dave. It's an abstraction or a stereotype. They're telling a story about a character named David Foster Wallace. I've struggled with this, my, with the inevitability of this myself in the last several weeks. There's no way to talk about Dave without telling a story, without offering something that ultimately has a life of its own. I think that all we can do is work together to keep the collective portrait we draw as varied as possible. As Amanda writes, we can't do this alone. We need each other in order to remain Dave, in order to remember Dave honestly, and we need to resist eulogizing and deifying him in ways that he would have found absurd. So this, then, is my contribution to that layered, perhaps palimpsestic portrait of a teacher whose fame made his generosity all the more striking and effective, whose empathy with his students was remarkable but sometimes failed, whose feedback could be simultaneously brutal and tactless and supportive and funny, and who taught and read and wrote with a kind of engagement that was both a tribute to his teachers and an inspiration to his students. About 150 years ago, Matthew Arnold charged critics with the task of seeing the object as in itself it really is. We're now pretty sure that this is impossible, but just as Dave's work was a lifelong attempt to see the world as it was, honestly and generously, knowing the whole time that he had to fail, I think our shared various approximate attempts seek to do the same for him. And that is perhaps the best kind of tribute and the kind he would have most appreciated.
my name is Corey Washington, and uh, I was a friend of Dave's. Uh, we graduated in the same class, um, class of 85. You know, before I came here, I wasn't really very clear what I was going to say. And I have to say I'm even a lot less clear now, coming to the end of this long list of people. Virtually everyone who's come before me has said part of what I intended to say. And so um, I think I may just end up filling out some of the things that people said before. Uh, this is, you know, this is really extremely difficult because, you know, he's, he was a very, very close friend to a lot of us. And I think as Charlie said, you, know, you have a lot of stories about Dave and a lot of really, your really important memories that you, various reasons you can't really talk about publicly. You know what I mean? They're just very personal or they're, you know, they're strange or they're slightly off color. They were sort of all Dave, you know, and so you're a little bit tied as to what you can talk about. But I guess I'd like to give you an idea of what it was like kind of being Dave's friend at college and kind of growing up with Dave. Um, I don't remember exactly when I met him. Uh, I think it was sometime in the spring of 1982, and I'm pretty sure it was through the debate team. And back then when you met Dave, you, you, never really, you didn't really meet Dave alone. You met Dave as part of the sort of the Dave-Mark pair, as Charlie said. They were... At least to the outside world, they, they were never quite separate. And when you met the Dave-Mark pair, only one of them was talking. It was mostly Mark. Dave was extremely quiet and shy, especially around people he didn't know. And Mark was just gregarious and fascinating and would kind of fill up, you know, all the verbal space with these fascinating things. I remember Mark would go on with these interesting long discourses about the virtues of liberalism in domestic and foreign policy and the role of the New Deal bring America and you know, at the time, I have to confess, I didn't really know what liberalism was, but I was sort of too embarrassed to ask. And all the while, there's sort of Dave around, and, and they were a team on the debate team, and they were a really great team. And, you know, they, you see them interact, and you could see uh, both their intelligence, but, but Dave was extremely shy. And so until you really got to know him, he, he really wouldn't talk very much. Um, but over time, he'd kind of come out a little bit more, and you'd sort of get a sense of... Um, you know, I think the person that sort of Charlie talked about when he gets comfortable with you and starts kind of um, opening up. Um, I do remember very clearly when I first realized Dave was something special academically. And uh, this was in the fall of uh, 1982. And um, uh, at that time, we were both in Professor Kenick's ancient philosophy class. And I don't know if the course is still around, um, but it was a really great class, and it was structured in kind of an interesting way. Um, Mr. Kenick would uh, give you two assignments. We had basically five different, five different sequences of assignments across the semester, maybe more than that, and, uh, but each, uh, every two weeks you get two topics, and you could either write on one topic, and then he would grade the paper and give you a grade. You could write on two, you write two papers, he'd give you a grade on each of them, and then he'd pick the best grade. And I was feeling pretty good about myself. I, you know, I've been getting some A's in the class. I've been writing two papers every single time I had the opportunity, and I'd get like an A and an A minus, and uh, Kenneth could pick the A. And we're sort of talking about this, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm telling, Dave's asking me questions about, you know, what's it like writing two papers, and, you know, is it really hard getting all that work done, and, uh, and stuff like that. And I'm like, no, no, it's really good. I think I've been doing pretty well. I think I've had a couple of A's and A minus. And it went on for a while, and then almost as an afterthought, I asked Dave, so, how have you done in the class? And he says, oh, I've gotten all A pluses. 
And this is one of those teachable moments, you know. The subject was me being taught, you know. But it was, it was sort of Dave's way, a very low-key way. You know, I mean, Dave, the complex thing about us, when you're dealing with him, he's operating on multiple levels, right? So partly he's just a very humble guy who's not going to brag about things. Um, partly he wanted to teach me something. And he holds back, and he definitely knew what he was doing when he put things this way and refrained from saying things. And that's the great thing about him. You're dealing with a guy who's a very regular person, very much a friend of yours, but he's operating on sort of different levels. And it's really experience of dealing with someone who's that smart and that unusual um, at that age. And I think, in, in some sense, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. We, from his writings and just his essays and dealing with them, you can see the days of genius. And I can... Describe stories, you know. Um, Mark and Charlie would talk about going to uh, uh, eat dinner at 5 o'clock uh, every day in the East Dining Hall. And uh, we end up about 6 and then go to the library. And uh, towards senior year, I was with Dave when he was writing his thesis um, and doing a lot of other work at the same time. And I distinctly remember one time we went to the library, and, and Dave would only go to the library if he had nine, at least 90 minutes. An hour was not enough to get work done, so he'd do 90 minutes. But that was the minimum amount. And this time we had about 90 minutes. And we met, uh, we went to, went to dinner, went to the library, and came back. And we were talking about what he did and uh, what he'd finished. And in about an hour, he'd written a 10-page paper. And it just the stuff would just sort of pour out of him, you know. Most people sort of work hard at this stuff, but it sort of pour out of him. And, and there was a period during the same time when he wrote about twenty pages of a senior thesis in three hours, and the stuff would just come out of him. Um, but in some sense, that's not anything new to I think people. You can see that he's a genius. You can see he's a phenomenal intellect, and it's it's something that I think we can all appreciate. What I think is sometimes harder to get a feel for is what it was like having Dave as a friend. And he was really one of the most phenomenal friends you could have. And I think for some very, very simple reasons. You know, he was extremely dependable. Uh, he was extremely committed to you. And this is something that I didn't really appreciate until I left college. He was unbelievably attentive. And, you know, it's hard to underestimate what it's like having someone who listens to what you say. You know, I'm sure we've all had this experience of talking to people and not quite feeling we're getting our point across, not quite feeling the person is listening to us. I never had that experience with Dave. You know, you think you can get this also sort of reading his books, but everyone notices his almost obsessive ability to pick out detail and to focus on things and concentrate on things. When he's your friend, he'd focus on you like that. And he'd listen intensely, you know, to what you're trying to get across and the details of what you're saying. And it was wonderful, you know. You, 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 I took it for granted, honestly, while I was in college, you know, and, until I had left. And you realize that in many ways people have other things going on in their heads and they're not quite thinking about you. That was never true when you were with Dave, even regardless of what was going on in his head. Even when he was having trouble, he was sort of there paying a lot of attention to you. And that's something that was, it's really priceless. It's something that you... You find really, really rarely you find it with a few friends, you know. But it's something that's, um, it's just, it's just very unusual. You know, there, there are things about the, being with Dave that, it's, you know, you can, you can kind of look back at and and. Uh, wonder about. One of the experiences I had with Dave, this was actually after he graduated, and this kind of gave a sense of what it was like being with Dave in college. Um, 
you know, I think like a lot of people at college, you don't, we didn't feel terribly connected to um, a lot of the other stuff that's going on on our campus, or even a lot of people who are also in our class. Um, we had an extremely good education. We had really great professors, and we learned an enormous amount from them. And we made some very, very good friends, but it was often a fairly small and tight-knit group of people. And I think uh, many of us, as I'm sure many students here, feel a little alienated from other people who are around who were around a campus at the time who you didn't feel so connected with. And this kind of came out in our 10th reunion uh, in 1995. Um, uh, you know, neither of us had really th thought about going back seriously. And in fact, none of, neither of us, had, we didn't plan to go back. Um, but David got asked to do a reading of Infinite Jest, which I think was about ready to come out. And so he called me up because he didn't want to go back alone. And after a little bit of arm twisting, I agreed. And, uh, you know, it's just understandable. We were kind of curious, but the fact is we just didn't feel like we had much connection to uh, a lot of the rest of the, the class, except for our friends. So when we came back from the uh, reunion, Dave was actually staying at Dale's house. And I distinctly remember going over and meeting him there. And, uh, you know, we, I picked him up there. We actually get in the car, and uh, he's driving, and we... I'm going to head down to where the reunion is. The reunion's at Porter House, you know, which is uh, I guess up here in the corner. I'm not quite sure which direction I'm pointing. But we, we drove through the center of town, um, heading down towards the old town hall, and got onto Boltwood. And we turned right there, go past the Lord Jeff, and we're heading towards Porter. Um, we drove past Porter uh, to the corner, drove left on Route 9, and drove out of town uh, for about seven miles or so. Um, after about seven miles, uh, Dave says, you know, we have to go back. And so we turned around and we drove back. And it was a very strange experience. Um, I have to say, there were anxieties that were locked in my head for 10 years, somewhere deep in my, you know, my brain that kind of came out. It was really like having like, you know, almost a, a replay of some strange post-traumatic experience. Um, but we get to the place where the union has, and it was actually really interesting. I think we were both kind of worried about going there, but we saw a lot of people who we hadn't seen in a long time, and you connect with people, you know, who we only sort of knew, but were really living very interesting lives. And I think at the end, Dave was really pretty happy he had gone. Uh, he had a good time doing his reading, uh, and I know about this about Dave, but he, he used to like to go first when he gave readings. I never quite knew exactly why this was. But he more or less insisted on doing this. And he did this at the uh, 95 reunion. And this was good because uh, they're handing out wine before the reading. And as you know, Infinite Jest was a little bit strange in certain parts. And people started drinking just before Dave started reading. And so they'd gotten loose enough by the time the really strange parts of the book were coming. And it was just a perfect confluence. They were comfortable and relaxed by the time Dave kind of really hit the pedal and got to the stuff that might make people feel uncomfortable. I feel sorry for the woman who came after because her reading was very sensitive and quiet. And by that time, I'm not sure that anyone was in condition. But for Dave, it went really, really well. So in, in, in spite of the fact that you know, he's really worried about what this reading was going to be like, uh, he's really happy he came back. And I think uh, you, sort of, you don't quite realize the connections you have to a place like this until you're away and then you see people again. And uh, it just it's... It just gives you a sense of, you know, that, that I think he experienced a lot of things that many people at college experience, which is 
feeling a little alienated and feeling not quite uh, connected. Um, you know, I have, I have other memories of Dave. You know, some of the, you know, I remember we, we took a trip after senior year, and uh, we went to Montreal with a, a guy named Brad Marshall and David Croft, and we had a great time. And just to give you a sense of what Dave was like, again, he was one of the nicest, gentlest people. He was also incredibly funny. And so, you know, we had this great time in Montreal, and as we came back, we're driving along the highway, and uh, we stop because we have to pee. And so Brad, David Kropp, and I are kind of by the side of the road peeing, and I turn over my, look over the shoulder to see Dave standing in the middle of the highway, kind of drawing attention of the cars to us. As he's kind of <laughs> <laughs> And it was just classic Dave, you know what I mean? It was just beautiful. <laughs> you know, the last time I talked to him was in May of this year. And, um, you know, I hadn't talked to him for a couple of years, and I kind of called him more or less out of the blue. And, uh, you know, from what I've read now, and I honestly didn't know what was happening to him the last year or so of his life, um, he sounded fine. He sounded like Dave. Uh, he was warm. He talked about how he's happy to hear my voice. He'd, he'd apparently been keeping track of what I was up to. You know, there's nothing about what he was going through. And that this, I think, was kind of really typical Dave. You know, no matter how much he was suffering, he was an incredibly warm and friendly guy. And he really made an effort to kind of be a friend for you. And that was something that, that you might not expect when someone gets really famous, you know, you might expect them, you know, often to become, uh, you know, very selfish or unfriendly, um, but that really wasn't what, what he was about. He was someone who, you know, and there, it's complex, he's someone who also didn't quite want to show certain things, but also made an incredible effort to be open and warm as a friend, and honestly, he cared a good deal about his friends. That's something that I, I don't think it's really maybe possible to know through his fiction, um, you know, I'd say this, this is the last little anecdote, but it, I saw him in D.C. back in 1998, and this is about the time that, you know, he, he was become kind of a huge name, and it was at one of his readings. And it's a thought you always have in your head when one of your friends gets really famous, which is, you know, are they going to remember me anymore? You know, or has he become too big for, to kind of pay attention to me anymore? It, it's a thought that goes to your head. And at this reading, uh, um, you know, Probably 200 people had shown up, maybe more, and they're all lined up around the bookstore to get their books signed by Dave. And at the time, we were going to meet and go out for a beer afterwards. I was kind of wandering around the bookstore, and he seemed was seemingly kind of intently uh, signing books. And I walked up and I bought a copy of his book at the front, you know, and I bought a couple other things. I was just wandering around the bookstore. And after the last person had come through, and I'm kind of walking up to him, he says, um, You know, you didn't have to buy that, I would have given it to you. And then he proceeds to describe where I was in the bookstore over the past hour because he'd been watching me kind of intently. And it, it sort of struck me. And I, I'm like, you know, why, why are we doing that, Dave? And he says, well, you know, I don't get to see you very often. And so I really, you know, I'm, I kind of try to pay attention. And that was what Dave was like. Can I say one more thing? Um, there are a couple people here who know Dave extremely well, and I'm hoping they'll say a few words. Um, one is Nat Larson, who was one of Dave's roommates at college, 
And one is Mark, also, I would hope would say a few things more. I'm just, just my little plea, but I'm hoping we could hear a few words. These guys know him pretty well. Well, I, I really wasn't planning to say anything at all, but I was one of Dave's roommates, and it just struck me how everyone really knew him. And for some of us who were there when he was a freshman and you know, was sitting here you know, the first day of freshman year and knew him you know, periodically throughout that time, how he was to us really was how he was to you. And it was really moving to hear uh, those remarks. And it also struck me how I maybe knew Dave a little bit differently from many of you because I, was, I always thought of myself as Dave's Philistine friend. You know, I was not a writer. I was not an English major. You know, I ended up being both a lawyer and investment banker. <laughs> um, and, it, it, and so one of the things that I always felt about Dave was that you know, we had so little in common, and yet, you know, we, we could be friends. And I never really understood um, much of his work. And his work was something that he was so passionate about, and he worked so hard at. And he was just, um, everything that he did to, uh, that he put himself into his work uh, was something that it was hard for me to, to fathom, to understand. I enjoyed being a lawyer and investment banker, but I never felt passionately about it. And what struck me was that how hard it was for him to do his work and how much he put into it. And to us, as, as his friends, to be that warm person who would be so caring and so attentive, I, I think that was easy for him. I really do. And I think... To me, that's always the day that I will remember, that, that the most important part of him was really easy for him. A lot of other things were so difficult. And I think that, that for me, it's that Dave that I always want to remember. No, Corey, I'm not going to say anything. It's, it's just too hard for me to speak about Dave. Um, you know, the one thing that we were... Uh, you know, he was a freshman right across the quad. He, it's very hard to come back here because this is such a Dave place. Um, and for him, it was such a day place. I mean, I look at these students I got here a few hours ago. I haven't been back many times in the last 25 years. But I just look at, I look at your faces, and I, it's a very Dave thing. Not in a pleasant way. <laughs> and for him, it was such an important place. You know, when Dave, 
came east from Illinois. He's from downstate Champaign, Illinois. And he could do this honey southern accent whenever he wanted to, you know. The Daver, he'd come in when he did know you and he was feeling comfortable, you know, he'd come into his room. The Daver's here at 19. Coming east was a big deal for him, and he made it a bigger deal in his head because he needed hurdles. He needed to create these fictional hurdles, which is something depressed people do. It's something very smart people do. Uh, It may be one part of the uh, way in which death eventually cornered him and killed him. But he came east, and he made this big deal about Amherst and about coming east. And he uh, he came to Amherst, uh, and you know everyone's talked about how smart he was and how great his grades were. I mean, he's off the chart smart, but there were a lot of smart people at Amherst. I mean, there were some math kids, and you know, I mean, but he, this is a guy who came east with I think a 48 on the ACT or something. I mean, crazy, a crazy sort of presentation to make to Dean Wall, the dean of admissions. And this is a true story. He came into his, he, you don't remember Dean Wall, you students, but he came in the interview and he sat there with Ed Wall, who was then the Dean of Admissions, son of an Amherst alum with a, an outstanding record from a big public high school in Champaign. And he looked at Dean Wall to start his interview. And he went outside and he threw up in the bushes. Uh, and while he was throwing up, Jim Wallace, who's Dave's father, was a professor of philosophy in Illinois, himself an Amherst grad, you know, came in, oh, I'm, you know, uh, and may even have met a, um, you know, knew Ed Wall from other situations and said, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry, you know, I mean, my son is getting sick, it must be something we ate, you know, yeah, right. Um, and um, Dean Wall said, well, your son can go to Amherst if he wants to. I mean, you know, we don't really need to do this, but, I, you know, we're going to let him in early, early admission. And Dave said, does that mean I don't have to do another college interview? Uh, And his father said, yeah. So they had had interviews at other places in New England lined up, and because he didn't want to throw up anymore, that's how he wound up at Amherst. (laughs) I just don't want folks to leave tonight without a sense of you know, you've heard about the warmth and the, the humor, and uh, Dale said to me in an email what great company he was, and he, one can't express enough what great company he was. And also, um, uh, you know, of course, how fascinating the mind was and how, how broad and how various. Um, but it's important also to come away with a strong sense of how painful his day-to-day life was and how powerful and compelling um, depression and things and, and pr- things that are allied depression that were linked to his personality uh, were you know I, I, the I mentioned about the chatter he said I hear this chatter in my head and I can't get it to shut up and it's it hates me this chatter and it just chatters things about me you're a fraud you're selfish you don't treat people right fraud 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 and the way to get it to shut up was to create a focal point outside yourself, which would be this other voice, which was the musical voice of, of, of the prose. And if you sit down and read his prose from the early the 90s to later, you'll hear the music changing, won't you? You'll hear 
sentence is getting longer and longer, and the lists are starting to take over, and you hear the sentences with these wonderfully balanced dependent clauses which go on and then feed into the one that, that goes next, and then they fork and they branch, and then the sentence ends with the word like although. It's funny, and it's done for comic effect, but there's something terrible happening to that mind. We lived together uh, in Moore Dormus sophomore year, and then we lived together when he was at Harvard on a botched attempt to get a PhD in philosophy, and that ended. Uh, and during the, our time together at Amherst, he had two nervous breakdowns, and um, uh, with all these other successes, and both of which were strange events because he didn't understand himself to be someone with mental problems. He thought he was just under a lot of pressure, someone with diagnosable problems. Uh, when he went to we, went to, we lived together in Cambridge, actually Somerville, when he was at Harvard. And that was when he had what would be one of the most serious breakdowns. He would, had to take him to McLean's, which is a hospital in Boston. There was, had to come to terms with certain things about drug use that would have life-changing effects. And um, the day that I came back to our apartment, and, in, and we were very close, and the day that I came back to the apartment, to and he was there and weeping. I something's wrong. Something's wrong. I, something's wrong with my head. And he said he kept saying, you know, I'm so sorry that I have to I have to go to a hospital, and I'm so sorry because I'm sticking you with your half of the rent. I don't want you to leave tonight with a simple picture. I can tell that as a story about how concerned he was how compassionate he was toward me, because here in this moment of pain, he's thinking about my $300 a month. But I also want you to understand it as how, how that's also depression talking, because it's a distancing thing. I'm so sorry you have to pay $300 more, Mark. You know, I'm so sorry, I'm really sorry. It's killing me that I so, feel so guilty so in that moment, and as we got ready to go to the hospital and he packed his toothpaste and his toothbrush, which he had a special case for because, depressed or not, he was always incredibly fastidious uh, in a way that was easy to make fun of. Um, but even in that moment, he was using that $300 as a strange thing. Do you see what I'm saying? And he's conscious of how that thing is being used to hurt me in that moment. I don't care about the $300, man. You're talking about suicide. Do you think I care? Why do you keep bringing it up? So there is a power of death that is intensely strong. And it killed him. And it's intensely strong in me, you, whether you're depressed or not, whether you have that piece of paper, diagnosis or not. And... Um, it brings me back to something that I hear in all the people who've spoken tonight, that I hear in this event and I see in some of the young people here. It brings me back to my own, Dave's own time at the colleges. How important it is that during the brief time we are here, you know, we take care of each other. Because that force, those strange little moments in our lives where we say, I feel guilty about costing you money in a way that distances the other person, those strange little moments are going to be powerful in our lives, too. 
part of Day's fiction was understanding that that power is very real and we should respect it, but that above it lies this other thing. And that's a realm of beauty and that's a realm of love. <laughs>